0: You are listening to The Adventures of Sariputta and Mogulana. I'm your host, Morris Sullivan. And yes, I've been gone for a while. I meant to take a week or two off while I went to the other end of the country to visit some family and Reverend Koyo Cabose. I had a great time, but I contracted COVID. So I'm fully vaccinated and all of that, so it wasn't too bad. But I was kind of out of it for a week, and then I was still coughing and raspy for another week or two. And then there were some other things that came up that affected my plans, but I'm back to normal now. I have a couple of talks recorded and ready to go, and things should be back on the usual schedule. I decided around Bodhi Day, when I told the story of the Buddha and his awakening, that I would do a series about the foundations of Buddhist practice. I get asked a lot about resources by people starting out, and there are a lot of good things out there to read and study. In fact, there's so much, it can be kind of daunting. But you don't need to learn everything in order to practice Buddhism. And for the next few episodes, I'll talk about those things that I think are good to know. But first, let me tell you this story about a woman who became enlightened. Her husband was quite wealthy, but he wasn't really very interested in his wife. He often got caught up in various activities and pleasures and left his wife alone and neglected. Well, to cope with her boredom... She started inviting Venerable Sariputta and Moggallana over to teach her the Dharma. And with guidance from these two excellent teachers, she soon became quite an advanced practitioner. She decided that she would leave the householder life and ordain. And not long after that, she was enlightened. The monks at the monastery were very impressed that with guidance from the Buddha's key disciples, this young woman could become an Arahant so quickly. Well, when the Buddha heard some monks talking about this, he told them about an event that had happened in ancient times when King Brahmadatta reigned over Varanasi. For some reason, the king began to worry that his son was going to stage a coup and take over the kingdom. And so he banished the prince. The prince and his wife went off to live in the forest, and he built a cottage, and the couple survived on the fruits and the things that grew there. Well, one day the prince saw this beautiful bird, happened to actually be a kind of deity, and he went to chase after it. He pursued it for a very long time, chasing after this elusive creature. His wife was overcome by sorrow. She had seen an ascetic meditating nearby, though, and so she went to him for help, wanting to know how to relieve her overwhelming loneliness in the absence of her husband. Well, this ascetic taught her to meditate, and she soon began to develop wisdom and spiritual knowledge. Meanwhile, her husband finally gave up chasing after this bird deity and went home. His wife was missing, but as he looked for her, she soon returned and said, Dear husband, thanks to your neglect, I sought enlightenment. I have obtained the fruits of wisdom and meditation, and she announced that she now wanted to live apart as an ascetic. Her husband was quite distraught at this news. He said, due to my greedy mind, I have not only lost my virtue, but my sweet wife. He continued to live in the forest alone until his father died, and then he went home to rule the kingdom. The Buddha explained that the prince and his wife were previous incarnations of the woman who had ordained and her husband. The ascetic monk was himself. I appreciate it very much that when Dr. Chow asked you what brought you here, some of the uh, honesty and vulnerability that you showed. That's really special. A lot of the time it's, well, you know, I found out it was down the street, and I wanted to check it out. Um, Which is fine. There's There's no wrong answer to that question. But my suspicion is that if we had really intimate conversations with everyone about what brought you here. You would talk about some form of stress, difficulty, suffering, dissatisfaction, even just wanting to try something different than what you've been experiencing so far because what you've been experiencing so far is not really giving you the satisfaction you want in life. How many of you that is that true for? The rest of you are lying. <laughs> you know, the thing is, Buddhism is, is for your benefit in the here and now and also into the future. And that's the, you know, the kind of the nice thing to keep in mind about Buddhism is that the things that we do that bring us back to stress, to the rounds of coming and going, to samsara and all of that kind of stuff, those, those beyond this lifetime, forms of suffering, are the same things that we do that bring us back to stress and difficulty in this lifetime. And so if you can practice something here that will help you become enlightened and transcend existence altogether and the ultimate bliss of eternity and all that kind of stuff, it will also help you in this life to be happier, more fulfilled, less stressed, better connected to others, all those things that make us uh, good, thriving people. So I was having this conversation. I was thinking about what what is it really, what should I start off the year talking about? What would be a good direction to take my teachings in for the coming months even? I have these conversations with myself once in a while. And I was talking to this fellow a couple of weeks ago who is very steeped in Zen Buddhism. He's ordained and he was, uh, uh, you know, he's been in that tradition for a long time. And we were talking about Zen and other traditions and kind of how they look at at the question of what do I need to know in order to practice. And a lot of them have, have a real kind of narrow view. If you go into a Zen center sometimes and say, what do I need to do? They'll just say, well, I'll just sit. That's all you need to do. If you go into a uh, Nichiren center, they'll say just chant the Namu Ho kyo If you go to a Pure Land place, they'll say just say the Nimbutsu, Namu Amida Butsu, or Adita fat in Vietnamese, and that sort of thing. But there, there are some things that we need to know if we're going to practice Buddhism. I think. A lot of times people will come in, though, and they'll go, well, you know, I want to try out this Buddhism thing, but there seems to be so much to it. And I've had people call me and say, I'm a little afraid to go to a temple because I don't know anything. Well, you don't need to know everything. But there are some things that it's really helpful to know. And so I was talking to this person, this Zen person, and he said that he had read my book a long time ago. And he said, as I was reading it, I came to the realization that some of that stuff that's in the Pali Canon, some of the stuff that the, the original teachings of the Buddha, says uh, said some of that stuff's really useful. So I thought, well, I should think about that. What can I give you that's useful? And not, you know, I mean, we can kind of focus on what it is that we can do in our practice that will end our stress and suffering. On whatever level you want to approach stress and suffering on. The Buddha would sometimes have these conversations with people who were hung up on kind of mystical questions. You know, where does the universe come from? And where does the Arahant go after he dies? And you know, things like this. And he would say, I don't teach that. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So that's what I mean when I say useful. Teaches you what causes suffering and how to end suffering. So I thought that for the next however long it takes, I would focus on what I what I think you need to know in order to practice. Now you won't, you will already know some of these things. You won't all practice all of these things. You, you don't have to memorize this stuff or anything, but just try when you listen to walk out with a couple of things that you go, yeah, I can practice with that. And that's a really good way of approaching this. Don't try to learn everything. Walk out with a couple of things that you can work with. So there's a couple of dangers, and one of them is to think that you don't need to know anything. The uh, other, and actually there is a concept in uh, Zen, which I'm I'm a Zen monk, of not knowing. And what that means is setting aside your views about things so that you can see what's really there. It doesn't mean being willfully ignorant. Okay. There's a difference between being ignorant and, and being will, deliberately not knowing, meaning being open to whatever experience comes up. The other danger, though, is to get hung up too much on scholarship. I've had conversations with people who could recite all kinds of scriptures and they could argue with me about the meaning of words in Pali and things like that, and they had no wisdom at all. So what you wanna do is to develop your wisdom, which is different than accumulating knowledge. Collecting knowledge, collecting facts and things like that can be very useful in certain contexts, but it's different than accumulating wisdom which is to realize the results of what you've learned. Realize it for yourself. So, as you practice, when you hear something, think, what does this mean to me? Not what does it mean to the rest of the world or what does it mean if I had to take an exam on it. Well, what does it mean to me? Your life is your exam. And you're passing if you're living a better life a good way to look at it is it's kind of like the difference between reading about strawberries and eating strawberry shortcake. You might learn a lot about strawberries, reading about them, but one bite of strawberry shortcake and you go, oh, now I understand what strawberries are about, right? So, but having said all that, it would help to have some context for this. So, a few weeks ago, on a, around December 8th, uh, leading up to Bodhi Day, I talked about the Buddhism origin story. You know, if you, if you list like superhero stories, you know, they all have an origin story. Well, the Buddha has an or, origin story too, and so I talked about that, and it's actually online if you want to, if you don't know that story, you can go and listen to that. It, and It helps to understand where Buddhism is coming from, if you want to know how to use it yourself. It also helps to know a little bit about what Buddhism is. So what is this thing we're calling Buddhism? Well, it's a religion. It's the fifth largest religion in the world. There's about a half a billion Buddhists in the world. Uh, There's about three or four million in the U.S., Most of them are of Asian descent, about 800,000 of them are convert Buddhists, meaning they they either didn't have a religion or they practiced another religion and then they became Buddhists. You can track that if you go to the Pew study, there's all these studies by the Pew Research Organization, they track that every 10 years or so. But Buddhism is different than a lot of other religions in the sense that what we usually think of as a religion is is a a belief system. And Buddhism is different because it's a practice system. It de-emphasizes dogma and things like that. You You can't practice not knowing if you're hung up on dogma, right? And it emphasizes the doing of Buddhism. I was at a Thai temple once for a retreat and I was talking to somebody and he said something about Buddhism and this Thai woman said, oh, don't say Buddhism. What do you mean? She says, it's Buddha-sasana. What are you talking about? An ism is a set of beliefs, a sasama is a set of practices, it should be Buddha-sasana. Well, if you walk around and said, I went to the Buddha-sasana temple, nobody would know what you were talking about. But she was right in a sense. It's it's really, it's it's the practices that the Buddha taught, not the things that you have to believe or believe in. So after the Buddha was enlightened, he kind of sat down on the shore of the river where he had awakened and had this conversation with himself. And he was trying to decide if he should teach or not. He thought, this is really profound stuff. And so... After a while, he decided that some people would get it. Some people would get it a little bit. Some people wouldn't get it at all. But for those who could at least get a little bit of benefit from the practice that he would teach. And so he had been uh, practicing other stuff, practicing asceticism and so on with this group of five holy men who, uh, you know, yogis in modern terms, And so, he decided he would go find them where they were and he would tell him what he had awakened to. And so, he went to this place called Isipatna, which still exists. It's uh, outside of... of, uh, It's a big pilgrimage site uh, where there was a deer preserve and stuff like that. It's near Varanasi, which is another, which is a big Hindu pilgrimage site. And so he, um, he went there, found them, and he told them what he had realized when he became enlightened. And we call this turning the wheel of the Dharma or setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. And there's a, you, you know, you can look, at, look it up. This discourse is called the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutra in Pali, which means setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. And you can find that if you want to. Um, I'm gonna explain that in some detail today, but I'll come back to it in a minute. That was the first turning of the wheel. Buddhism is a living religion. And this, this discourse that I'm talking about was about 2,500 or 2,600 years ago. And it has grown and evolved since then. All religions grow and change. We tend to think of them as being, well, this is the way we do things, and it's the way we've always done things, but it's not really what happens. As humankind evolves and cultures change and stuff like that, religion tends to change with it because it adapts to what we need. So the second turning of the wheel of Dharma happened about 500 years after the Buddha's death. And uh, it was said to have been delivered at the Vulture Peak Mountain, Peak Mountain in Rajgir, which is, um, and the emphasis is on emptiness. So we chanted the Pranaparamita hridaya Sutra, the Heart of the Great Perfection of Wisdom Sutra, earlier. And that's, that particular discourse encapsulates this teaching on emptiness. And so, and it also emphasizes compassion. And those two elements form something called bodhicitta, which is the epitome of the second turning of the wheel of Dharma, and I'll come back to that at some point in the next several weeks. So you might wonder, and people ask me, well, wait a minute, this was 500 years after the Buddha's death, how did he give this talk? Well, there's a lot of sort of mythical explanations for that, But the best way to understand it is, again, as I said, Buddhism evolved, but the people who gave these teachings as they became enlightened masters themselves, wanted to make sure that what they were saying was still the word of the Buddha, was still grounded in the teachings of the Buddha. And so it's still the word of the Buddha, even though he didn't physically say these things. Does that make sense? So, at this point, Buddhism had moved out of India into other parts of the world, and the emphasis had changed from individual enlightenment, which was seen in places like China as being sign of selfish, to enlightenment for the benefit of all. And so this is really a kind of an important point, this second turning of the wheel of Dharma. The third turning happened, It is a little vague on when the third turning happened, but it, sometime after the second turning, Um, And the main focus on it is Buddha nature, which is the idea that the essential mind, there's a Zed uh, story, someone says, show me the mind you had before your parents were born, or show me the face you had before your parents were born. This is the face of the essential mind, the mind that's always been there before you were here. This is the, the sort of the ground of being, and it is unstained by delusions, misunderstandings, and irrationalities and so on. So it is pure, Um, free from the mental mechanisms that lead to stress and suffering. And so, as a result of us all having this essential pure mind, we're all capable of becoming enlightened, and in fact, ourselves becoming Buddhas. So that's what Buddha nature is. And so, Buddhist practice in this sense becomes the Buddha way, the path to Buddhahood. So you said all of these words during, the, during all of the chants that we did today, right? So part of what I'm trying to do here is, you know, it's always nice if you're gonna say something to know what you're talking about. So, you know, part of the reason to understand this is because when you come in and you chant these things, you'll have some sense of what, what you mean. Do you need to know all of this in order to practice Buddhism? No, not really. But it can help, and it's useful. I said I was going to focus on what's useful. It's useful to know that there are different ways of practicing, that there are different approaches to the Buddha's teachings, and all of those things are tools that you can use in your practice. And so, if something's not working for you, keep at it, because something else will. And so that's the important thing about this lesson. Something's not making sense, that's okay. Stick with the things to do, and eventually other things will become clear also. So let's go back to the first turning of the wheel. This is the foundation for everything else. This is the first talk that the Buddha gave after his enlightenment. So even in tra- traditions that never talk about this, This is why those traditions exist. So they're the basis for all of the stuff that they do. So this is where the Buddha talked about the middle way. How many of you have heard about the middle way? Right, almost everybody. So the middle way is not the idea that you can do everything in moderation, which you'll hear sometimes. Oh yeah, Buddhism is all about moderation. Not really. I mean, kinda, but not really. The idea is that he was born into luxury, material luxury. He had anything he wanted. So any any sensual pleasure, the best food, the best bed to sleep in, you know, all of those things he had access to and realized that those don't lead to happiness, not true happiness. They can be pleasant, but they don't lead to true happiness. And then he went into this path of practice where you really deprived yourself of everything. And he almost starved himself to death and he realized that doesn't go there either. And so he said, what is neither one? There's gotta be a path that's down, that is not this and not that, it's a middle path. And so that's what he came up with when he became enlightened. So this is where the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path come in. If you ever read, like, the Religious Studies textbook version of Buddhism, they'll talk about that, because that's where it all started. And so the first noble truth, when he sat down with his five ascetic companions to tell them what he had awakened for, he said, I awakened to these four truths, and the first truth is the truth of suffering. Now, you'll hear that the Buddha said that all life is suffering. That's not quite right. He actually said, now this, monks, is the noble truth of dukkha, stress, suffering, dissatisfaction. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Associating with what is unbeloved is stressful. Separation from what is beloved is stressful. Not getting what one wants is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. In other words, existing in this world is stressful. And then he said there's two levels of this. One is the cycle of birth and rebirth. coming back to existence over and over again. And then the other is the day-to-day stress and dis-ease that we experience. So there's a cycle of birth and suffering. If you're born, there's suffering. Birth itself is suffering, coming out into the cold, harsh light. And then once there's birth, there's aging, illness, and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. So there's a kind of an interesting way of thinking about this. The first truth is that life is a bumpy road dukkha means kind of rough. And I was reading this thing by a Sanskrit scholar, and he was talking about the etymology of the words dukkha and sukha, which are sort of opposites. One we translate as suffering usually, and the other we translate as happiness. And he said that the origin seems to be that sukha was referring to the hole that an axle goes into in a cart, and whether it allows for smooth rolling. And, the, and dukkha then was a hole that a lot makes for a bumpy ride. So life is sometimes going to be bumpy, but it is possible to smooth that out. So dukkha and sukha. Um, and then there's stress on a different level, which is maybe less direct. We want things we don't get, and we get things we don't want. So one is coming back to the cycle of suffering and the other is experiencing suffering in this life, stress and suffering. So there was a a conversation that the Buddha, that uh, Sariputta, who was one of the Buddha's key disciples, had with a holy man uh, about this. And this holy man asked him about the nature of suffering. And he said, there's three kinds. There's the stress of pain, the stress of fabrication, and the stress of change. So, physical pain, illness, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's the stress of pain. And then there's the stress the mind creates. Like when you're meditating, and your mind decides to be restless, or when you get angry and say things you later regret, or you create a lot of anxiety by having expectations about things that, 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 and having perfectionistic tendencies. Those are all mental fabrications. Now that doesn't mean that there are organic components to them and things like that, but they exist because of the mind's engagement with what goes on. And then there's the stress that comes from inconstancy. All all compounded things, which is almost everything, everything is made up of other stuff, including this, are inconstant and therefore stressful. In other words, they're gonna change. you can get the nicest new car that was ever made and you're either gonna get bored with it or it's gonna get a parking lot ding or you're gonna become so stressed out by trying to prevent parking lot dings and take care of it and not not get bored with it and all that kind of stuff, that just having it over time is gonna become stressful. If you think about like food, if you got your favorite meal, ah, that's great. If you got your favorite meal the next day, that's well, still pretty good. You got your favorite meal the third day, now you're getting a little tired of it. By the 21st day in a row, you never want to eat whatever that was again. Okay. That's, that's the stress that comes from inconstancy, from change. The second truth is that if there's a cause, is that there's a cause for this. And the cause is not the thing itself is the way the mind engages with the thing. He says, this is the noble truth of the origination of stress, the craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there, craving for sensuality, for becoming, and for non-becoming. So, basically, desire is the source of, generally speaking, is the source of our stress. Not all desire, but desire that leads to suffering, leads to suffering. There's some things that probably don't. I kind of like breathing, you know? It's kind of important to be able to do that. You have to eat, you have to drink in order to sustain life and that kind of thing. But there's sort of three poisons that arise in association with desire. There's greed, anger, and ignorance. And really, greed and anger are sort of subsets of ignorance. It's really all about not understanding what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness, and then living in a way that creates happiness and avoids suffering. Um, it's the difference between wanting something and thinking you need it. Is often at the root of this. So, you like something? That's fine. You think you have to have it. If you don't have it, then it becomes stressful. You become attaching to it, imagining it's necessary to your well-being or that it's somehow going to lead to true happiness. The Buddha wanted enlightenment. You know, that's a desire. And we should want liberation too. That's not going to lead us to suffering. But what if you insisted that you have to be right all the time? A lot of people have that desire. Or you need to get even with people who don't do the right thing, right? Those kinds of desires lead to stress. Uh, We'll go into this more in a few weeks, but there are mental processes that are residues of past karma, action, that tend to cling. And clinging, in Buddhist terms, when we're talking about coming back to the samsara, the cycle of coming and going, clinging doesn't end with uh, uh, the end of life. It continues. So if you do things in this life that lead to clinging or that are related to clinging, then that becomes a stain on your mind. And that stain on your mind continues to exist even after this particular body's gone. And so that is kind of how we keep coming back And the nature of your clinging determines what form you're going to take when you come back next time. Does that make sense? I'll talk about that more in the future, too. But I just kind of want to give you a sense of sometimes Buddhism is very humanistic. Sometimes we're talking about that, you know, after this, beyond this life. Now, you don't have to believe in rebirth or reincarnation in order to practice Buddhism. I personally do, and I think it's very helpful, helpful. but it is kind of important to see that the results of your actions in this life continue beyond just this sphere that you move in in this particular form. The good things you do exist after you're gone. The bad things you do also exist after you're gone. You know, the effect that you have on the world continues beyond just your immediate presence. Uh, so the third noble truth, if you want to end suffering, you have to end the cause. Not the external circumstance, because usually people think that if they get something different, that they're gonna be happy, and then they get it and they're still not happy, right? The cause is what your mind does, how your mind creates suffering. And so the Buddha said, this is the noble truth of the cessation of stress, the the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of craving. So we usually fixate on the eternal or on the external um, or sometimes even on the wrong internal. You might be perfectionistic and you think that the answer to your problem is to always be perfect. How well does that work? Okay. Uh, You can make a shift from, you know, I mean, we might be having to take a test at school, for example, and we want to pass, and that's a good thing. But if we think we have to pass, that's not a good thing. Weirdly enough, perfectionism tends to make us less perfect. And it, because it creates a lot of stress, it makes it harder for us to do what we want to do. So things like determination and energy and effort, those things are good. But those are different than making demands on ourselves that get in the way of our happiness and success. So the fourth truth is the path. The Buddha doesn't just say, okay, we got to figure it figured out now where truth comes from or where suffering comes from. And so now that's good, we can, we can stop. He says there's a path to the end of suffering, which are, he says, this is the noble truth of the practice leading to the cessation of stress. Right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And so that's the middle way. It's not a compromise. It's doing the right things that lead to the cessation of of stress, of dukkha. So, I'll try to kind of encapsulate that in a way that makes it a little bit easier to approach because you don't need to memorize the eight things in the Eightfold Path. You need to remember that the practice is something that leads you to understand reality as it is so that you learn to examine your thoughts and intentions so that they align with what leads to happiness and leads away from suffering. That's what what wisdom is. Understanding what really leads to stress and suffering, what really leads to happiness, and then doing the things that go where you wanna go behaving in a way that's in line with wisdom, so having compassion for yourself and others. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood is really about that. It's taking into account what leads to stress and suffering for other people, and and living in a way that causes less harm. And then third, training your mind, letting go of the mental processes that lead to harm for yourself and others, and cultivating those that lead to well-being for yourself and others. So I know that's a lot. You know, if you're new to Buddhism, you probably just feel like I sat here and pelted you with stones for the last 20 minutes. But that's okay. You don't have to walk out of here with every stone I threw. Find a few that look really shiny to you and put those little gems in your pocket and take those with you and try to put those to use. And over time, you'll have a box full of jewels. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for joining me for episode 41 of The Adventures of Sariputta and Mogolana. I hope this was helpful. I'll continue talking about the foundations of Buddhism for the next several episodes. Also, if you've been following my other podcast, Holding Up the Heavens, I'll resume production of those this weekend. So look for the next episode within a few days. And if you're not following that podcast, I hope you'll check it out. You can find it on Spotify. So don't forget to put these things into practice so that, like the woman in the story the Buddha told, you can develop spiritual superpowers of your own. Now go save the world.